Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. I hope you had a really great weekend. I know uh, we did. And uh, being disappointed in our football teams and everything, right? And um, yeah, our field goal kicker for U of A. One point. But uh, Linda's happy. She's a ASU. Yeah. Uh, what do they call them? They call them scum devils. Is that it? Yeah. I know it's terrible, but that's their name. Devil. Devil, right, is in there. So anyway, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so football was really good. And uh, just lots of good stuff going on this weekend, being with our family and stuff. So um, I, uh, I, I, think that, uh, I think that Thanksgiving is just, yeah, it's just one of my favorite times of uh, the year. It's just the weather's beautiful and food's great. It's all about the side dishes for me. It's not about the turkey. It's about the side dishes. And um, yeah, it was really good. The, uh, it's a little bit of a bummer. Our kids, you know, they're on two different sides of the universe, it, I feel like. And so they, they can't be at Thanksgiving. It's like the first one or so that we haven't been with our kids. But, um, but it's good. They're going to be with us at Christmas. So it's good, though. So um, I've been reading this really great book. I won't tell you because then you'll go read it. But it's a book just for pastors, right? And it's, uh, it, it's, it's about speaking, it's about communicating and things like that. And, and uh, I've just really been enjoying it because, um, but there's one thing that uh, focuses a whole chapter on this. It's about communicating and uh, good speakers and pastors always create a little tension, right? There should be some tension in the message in particular because um, the gospel's full of tension, actually. And so if your illustrations and things like that can bring a little tension to things, then, you know, the proper amount will help you connect with the text. So we're in Mark chapter 8 today. And um, there's actually some good tension in there. But let me create a little bring it front and center kind of tension for us. Actually, I was uh, discussing uh, Mark, our financial administrator, Mark uh, Miller. He's doing such a great job. He's, he's still new. We still find things, you know, that he's journeying through, just learning uh, a lot about um, how you manage um, the resources of a church and oversee it and, and all those kinds of things. It's sort of really great. Um, so we talk about money all the time, right? And money, there's a great tension uh, thing, right? The, the most tension that you find probably in your marriage, in your family, and things like that, right? It's when you start talking about money and how you handle it. And if you want to uh, create tension at church, just talk about money, right? And it's kind of crazy because Jesus, uh, Jesus addressed money and all the issues surrounding money, right, and wealth and our resources a lot. You know, almost uh, 60% of what he addressed included that um, uh, directly, right? So <clears throat> when you talk about money in, in the life of a Christ follower, it, um, 
You can start creating tension. You can do this because those that give, you know, don't want to hear it all the time, um, actually, as much as you might think, but they're, they're not usually offended. It's always people that are wrestling with the giving thing and the money and all that stuff. Those people really get, you know, they're, they're, um, kind of critical of it. In fact, I had someone recently say, you're always talking about money. And I wanted to say, no, I'm not. No, I don't actually. But it's, it's a part of us because of giving and things like that, right? So um, they, got, they were just all upset saying, you know, your church talks about money too much. And I basically said, you're totally wrong. We probably don't talk about it enough, right? So let me, so now that I've already created a little bit of tension, right? <laughs> Mark and I were talking about this. We did the math, actually, because uh, as, as he's learning to help me um, uh, uh, manage the resources of Vale Christian Church, you know what we found out? It's, it's something that I, I kind of knew, but, but, but for Mark, it, it's, um, it, it's kind of new because he's new to the role, new to the job. And like I said, he's doing a great job. We just did the math, and we applied an average income, which would be like a... Uh, like a school teacher, a police officer, those kinds of uh, just um, uh, blue collar uh, kind of average incomes. And we, we did the math for us as a church. And you know what we found out is if everybody in our church, if all the giving units in our church just gave 10% of their income, you know what would happen to our annual budget? It would triple. It would triple if just everybody gave 10%, Right? And so as Mark and I were talking about that, his, you know, he's, he's kind of like, I can't believe it. We would go from basically about a $1 million budget to a $3 million budget annually. If everybody just gave 10%, 10%, just gave 10%. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that staggering? You know what that means? So, so as I'm teaching Mark this, I said, here's what that means. It means that there's a lot of folks that don't get it. And, and, and as we talk through that, I said, now, look, you got to be really careful here. You got to be careful because it's easy to go, man, if people just got it and get all upset at everybody that doesn't give and things like that, it just, it, it, it'll, it'll get under your skin and get you fired up. And as you go back to this passage right here, you know what you see? You see people that Jesus has called to himself disciples, right, following him already. And you know what we've seen over this last couple of weeks? And you see right here, they don't get it. These are people that are directly looking into Jesus's eyes all the time, each and every day, day in and day out. These are people, all right, that have seen him feed 5,000 people, 4,000 people, right, and then they get in a boat and they got one loaf of bread and, 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 and they're like, oh, we don't have, we, we only got one thing of bread and we're all in the boat, right? They don't get it. They're, they're, and, and Jesus is through these scenes in chapter eight, chapter seven in particular, um, and, and here he is teaching them things that they don't quite get. And you're gonna see how easy it is to go, Wow, I cannot believe this. It's so easy to pick on Peter in this passage and go, what a knucklehead. I cannot believe you don't get it. 
and, and, and the rest of them. And so as I'm talking to Mark about this, I'm like, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's who we are as humans, right? So many times we just don't, we just don't see it. We don't get it. And so before you get too critical, this is the point here of these guys it's meant to, the reason why Mark is communicating this and why God is so perfect in the way he writes the New Testament, utilizes Mark, utilizes Peter right up and how this applies to you and I is because we don't get it either half the time or most of the time, just like these guys. If you're unwilling to see yourself in this passage, then, then you're stiff-arming God and that's what it's meant to do, jar you and create tension in your life, in my life, it's created tension for me as well. Um, take a look, Mark chapter 8, and slip down to verse 27, okay? And I promise you when we're done, you, you won't feel uh, guilty as much as I think you'll be motivated and encouraged, okay? It says in uh, verse 27, chapter 8 of Mark, then Jesus and his disciples went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. And this is a great question. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Peter answered, well, you're the Christ. And then he warned them not to tell anybody about him. <laughs> Jesus is awesome. It's like, don't tell anybody. Okay. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the experts in the law, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now look, we know the end of the story, so we know what he's talking about. Just keep that in mind. These guys, they haven't been to the end of the story yet, Okay. He spoke openly about this. And so, you see, everything's shifted now. Did you notice that the background, you know, the crown flip, you know, the crown of thorns is on the bottom the, and the real crown's up top, right? Everything changes in the story now. Start talking about Jesus' death in a, in, in, in a different way. And Jesus reveals who he is, that he's truly king, all right? But he starts telling them things that they're like, what? Okay? So everything changes right here in the midst of, of this grand narrative and story, right? He's talking openly about it. So Peter took him aside. He's fired up. He's, he's upset. And, and just look at it. He, he doesn't get it yet. Peter takes him aside. He's like, Jesus, come here, come here, come here. Right? He began to rebuke him. He kind of got up in Jesus' grill. He's <laughs> like, what are you saying? What are you talking about? But after turning and looking at the, his disciples, he rebukes Peter. So, he, so it's like they're, they're in this thing. They're in this conflict, right? Peter's really uptight. And, he, and, and Jesus looks back and realizes everybody's paying attention. Everybody's watching. Look what he says. <laughs> he goes, here comes the lesson. Here's how bad he doesn't get it, right? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> That's huge. Jesus has no problem 
with confrontation. You are not um, setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. It's, you're making this about you, dude. You're making this about you. All right, keep going. Because I'm preaching before I'm preaching. Then Jesus called the crowd along uh, with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That is such a great verse, I would underline that. For whoever wants to save his life, underline the word life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. So that's what you call a paradox. Finding leads to losing, losing leads to dying, dying leads to living kind of thing, right? Verse 36, for what benefit is it for a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his life? You can have everything. Just keep all that. Keep it all. Pretend like it's yours. You're going to lose it if you do, right? What can a person give in exchange for his life? (laughs) Well, pretty much nothing, right? For if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, notice there's no chapter break right there. Finally, finally, the the translators like connected it, right? And he said to them, I tell you the truth. There are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Okay. Now this, this is powerful. Can I give you a quote um, from Martin Luther King Jr.? This is great. This is a big old long quote, but look at this. So you know enough about history. This will make sense. To our most bitter opponents, we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we'll still love you. Send us your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we'll still Love you, but be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall also appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Double victory means we're going to win and others are going to win because of this. See, these aren't powerful words. These are words that I think overwhelm me, actually, when you really, really pay attention to these words. But they inspire me, and I want to love like that. I want to love like that. Do you want to love like that? It's easy to say, harder to live out. Jesus challenges us. In this passage, he challenges us to love like that, see? To not make it about you, not make it about me. 
Jesus taught about his mission here. And shockingly, from the perspective of Peter, one of his disciples that, uh, uh, who, who's, who's a part of this mission, all right, and involves Jesus' suffering and death, right? Because you can see the end of the story. You realize Peter, um, at the beginning here, <clears throat> doesn't get what it really means to follow Jesus, right? Because in Gethsemane, we'll talk about this, in the garden, when um, some of those, uh, 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 when the authorities come to get Jesus, Peter stands up with a sword and he cuts that guy's ear off, right? And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, this is not how it's supposed to go. You're, you don't get it even here, Peter, right? And then he, whatever he did, you know, he glues that guy's ear back on, Right? Put your sword away, you bonehead. You're doing it wrong because this isn't the way it is. See, if it was me, I, I, I promise you, I would have been, I'd have had a sword too and I'd have done more and cut somebody's ear off, you know? I don't know, maybe. Peter's flailing around and he whacks that guy's ear off. Don't think that Peter cut his ear off like in a surgical manner. It was like he's flailing around it. And it's like, oh, whoops, kind of thing is what I think, you know? Right? Let's talk about taking up our cross. This is a big deal. This is where it really gets there. He tells his disciples, he tells the crowd that follow him, following me involves denying yourself. Denying yourself. What does that look like? Denying yourself. It means it's not about me. It's not about, uh, these aren't mine. This, these resources aren't mine. My life's not mine. All that kind of stuff, right? That's what he's trying to do. Peter demonstrates what it doesn't mean though, right? He demonstrates what it doesn't mean. He had expectations for Jesus and he asserted them after Jesus predicted that he, the son of man, would suffer and be killed, right? Peter didn't deny himself and said he denied Jesus. And Jesus responds by equating that with Satan and by telling Peter to get behind me. Look, you're not getting it, all right? To stop leading and start following Follow me, would you follow me in my example and do what I do? Act like I act. Be like me. Right? Everything that Jesus has, it, 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 was, it was about others. He held on to everything uh, loosely, right? Denying yourself in the context of following Jesus means giving up the right to define your own vision for life and giving it to somebody else. Namely, Jesus. <clears throat> That's what he's trying to teach right here. What is Jesus' vision anyway? Have you thought about that? What is his vision? He says that anyone who wishes to follow him has got to take up, take up his cross. Well, <clears throat> what does that mean? You know, Peter, <clears throat> he demonstrates what it doesn't mean again, right? He identified Jesus as the Christ. Who did people say that I am? Well, they say all these things, right? You know, prophet, John the Baptist, Elijah maybe. Who do you, you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you're the Christ. The coming king who's expected to fight Israel's battles. I, I would have been right there. I would have been right there. I would have had a sword and I would have been expecting, wanting, hoping, just I know the way I am. I would have been Peter. You're, you're, you're here to fight our battles. 
If you were Jewish and you anticipated the coming of the Christ, what would you expect to take up? You would expect to take up his cause. You would expect to take up precisely what Peter later took up, right? When the Jewish authorities already said this, Peter draws a sword, he attacks a slave of the high priest. Jesus warned that those who take up the sword, they're going to perish by the sword. So Peter, who thought he was following Jesus, took up not his cross, but his sword. I'm telling you, I'd have been right there. So Rome, the superpower of the day, crucified Jewish rebels, right? The the crucifixion wasn't just simply a means of execution. It was also a political statement. It was a big statement. By crucifying those who opposed them, especially the insurrectionists, right? The Romans said to the Jews, we're in charge and you're not. Because it was brutal. It was brutal. If you took issue with Rome's uh, right to rule, then you ended up on one of his crosses. The cross inserted into the hand of Israel served as a perpetual and bitter reminder to Jews that they were, su- they were a subject people. You put the cross out here and it's really easy. That's a 27-foot cross. I, I, I don't mind saying that when we built the church, we tried to set aside some money so that we could do something that was really imposing and that was going to become a landmark in the area. Something that just got in your face and said, this is what we're all about. But I got to tell you, people don't understand that out there very much, right? It looks beautiful. And actually, if you were a, a first century uh, believer, if you were Jewish at this time and Jesus is uh, Jesus is alive, that is a despicable symbol of your subje- uh, of, of being subject to Rome, right? Now comes someone Peter believes in. He believes that he's the Christ. And he's telling people to take up their crosses if they want to follow him. And many of, the, many of uh, those uh, whom Rome condemned, right, to crucifixion, they're forced to carry the cross being to the site of execution. You can go to John chapter 19 and find that all out. Uh, does Jesus mean that he's going to lead people in rebellion against Rome and that many are going to be crucified as a result? Is that what he means? Or does he mean that those who follow him will viciously take up and, and, and take away the crosses of Rome? If you, if you, if it, uh, the word translated take up, it can also mean take away. See, no. But if you're expecting Christ, you might interpret his words in such a way, right? If, I'm sure I'd have been sucked right in there and interpreted the same way. So Jesus as the Christ came to fight Israel's battles. Yes, just not the battles the Jewish folks, most of them expected him to fight. His sights are set on a bigger enemy, one whom Peter was unwittingly aligning himself with. (laughs) That's why Jesus says, get behind me. And he calls him Satan. He's like, you're thinking like Satan. Sounds it's brutal, but it's the truth. It's the truth, right? You think this way sometimes? I know I do. I know I do. Jesus 
will not lead Israel in rebellion against Rome, the enemy of the day. Instead, he's going to lead Israel in rebellion against Satan, the enemy of the ages. To take on Satan, you don't take up a sword. Instead, you put on love. You put on love. Satan wants you to take up a sword, return evil for evil, keep violence in uh, circulation. If you strike at Rome, Rome strikes uh, at you and, and on and on and on and on, right? And you can apply this to almost everything. Jesus wants you to put away the sword and put on love and start denying yourself and stop making it about you. If you submit to Rome, and so far as submitting to Rome doesn't conflict with submitting to Jesus, right? That's what you're supposed to do. If serving a Lord other than Caesar means that Caesar condemns you to crucifixion, then you die a brutal and shameful death without striking back. You turn the end of the cheek, you go the extra mile, you take up that cross. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be, right? You take up your cross literally because you've already taken it up spiritually. So that ugly, brutal symbol of torture that's out there, 27 feet tall becomes beautiful. We're supposed to follow Jesus in a way of self-giving love. If following Jesus leads you to take up your cross in a literal sense, so be it. For the sake of love, love for Jesus, love love for your enemies, you'll lose the battle. You got a larger battle to fight and you can't win that one with a sword. You can only win it with love. And so Paul says, don't be be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, right? Right out of Romans 12. With love, especially love for your enemies, you defeat Satan. You might even win over a few enemies along the way and have a double victory. Remember Martin Luther? A double victory. Later in the gospel of Mark, a Roman soldier soldier in Mark chapter 15 has a radical change of heart after watching Jesus die on the cross. It's an amazing scene. We'll get there eventually. Jesus won that double victory, freedom for himself and freedom for his enemies. So Jesus, after his first encounter with Satan, He told his countrymen, he says, repent and believe. So to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself. Stop making it about you. It's easy to do. And I'm preaching to myself right here. Deny yourself. You repent of your way. You take up your cross. You believe in the way of self-giving love. And it's self-sacrifice and self-denying. You die to self every single day. Stop making it about you. And so all of your resources, all of your wealth, all of your life, all of your gifts, everything about who you are is not yours. It belongs to Jesus, you see. Let's talk about self-giving love. That's this next point. You probably have at least some vision for your life. Uh, The things you'd like to accomplish, the relationships you'd like to enjoy, a place you'd like to travel to. So... How do you feel about relinquishing the right to define your life? How do you feel about that? This is such a great question. See, I don't don't like it. Yesterday, Linda and I, uh, I tortured Linda yesterday. It was terrible. 
But we are, uh, we're kind of redoing, you know, the, our kids moved out and we just kind of like closed the door in their bedrooms and went, right? Well, we're kind of redoing all that and we're throwing stuff away and we're going to re-carpet and repaint and all this stuff or, you know, we're just fixing it all up. Well, in order to do that, you kind of got to shuffle things around. Well, we, we bought a new bed. So we're going to take our bed, put it in one of the other rooms, and so that when they come home, there's a nice big bed in there and all that stuff, right? So, oh, we got this really great couch. It's made by Norwalk. We've had it for a long time. I forgot when we moved it in, it took like five people to move it in. So I said, Linda, we can do it. She's like, Ben, I don't think so. And I'm like, so we started picking it up, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm totally married to a string bean, and there's no way. So I took that thing apart, and I took the, it's got one of those hide-a-bed things in there, and I, I unbolted it, and I took it all out, made it really light, sort of. So then we start going, taking it down the hallway. So we get down halfway down the hallway, and we got to kind of get it all in there, and she's like, it's not going to fit. And I'm like, don't, it's going to fit. Don't tell me it's not going to fit. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. She's like, no. <laughs> Shut up. Okay. Yeah, no, didn't fit. I don't like it. I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't like people telling me I'm wrong. I don't get it. Be honest with yourself, right? No, nobody does, right? Jeez. Oh, I got vision for my life. Many people can't even begin to follow Jesus, at least the way the scriptures define following Jesus, because they can't fathom denying themselves. We want to make it about us. I mean, we're all like this. To deny ourselves, to relinquish the, the, the right to define our lives, you got to somehow come to the conclusion that you can't be trusted. You can't trust yourself. That we don't know the world well enough, that we don't know ourselves well enough, and that we don't know the future well enough to say with any degree of confidence that the path we envision for ourselves is the right one. See, because we can't see what God sees. In any event, most of us don't walk down our paths for very long before running into roadblocks, and pretty soon you're going down the hallway with a couch, and it doesn't fit, and you just, because you just didn't listen, because you're too dang hard-headed. <clears throat> for many of us, it takes the failure of our visions to persuade us to release them. And it was a humiliating moment for me to, <laughs> that, that couch is never going to fit in those bedrooms. Well, we got it in one. We got it in one so that we could turn it around so we could come back so we could get it in the other one because the other one's the one I wanted it to. I'm telling you, I, I lost all my brownie points, <clears throat> right? And you know what? She never said, you know what she never said? This is how awesome Linda is. She never said, I told you so. I got the look. <laughs> I know how to interpret the look. But it's my own pride. It's my own pride. It's my own pride. Because I'm interpreting the look like I told you so. And, and she's, like, she's like, no, honey, I love you. 
I know you really wanted it in there. And you're, you're hardly ever wrong. I mean, that, she might as well just stab me in the heart by saying that. <sighs> See, in this story, Jesus invites our trust, right? The scriptures deem Jesus trustworthy. If you can't be trusted to define your life, you can trust. Who can you trust? Can you trust anyone else? Well, you can trust Jesus. I'm telling you, that's what this is about. It's one thing to relinquish your right to define life. It's another thing to give that right to someone else who commands you to take up your cross. To take up your cross, you first have to put away your sword, stop injuring others for the sake of advancing your cause. You put away your anger, your malice, your resentment. You cease hostility. You forsake revenge, all those things. And you start living like everything that you have is not yours. Three million dollars, that would be our budget, you guys. Three million. One, one million sounds like a lot, but it's not actually for 850 people. It's not. But we live like we don't trust Jesus and his mission. We're living like it belongs to us. That's exactly uh, what's happening right here. And I think that if... If, if what's being communicated here is that we're, 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 we're holding on to it. And, and look, I'm right there with you. I get it. I get it. Jesus, though, he, he focuses on Psalm 22. And we don't have to turn there today, but I want you to read Psalm 22 sometime. And I've challenged you to read through the gospel of Mark just in one big, one setting. Do it multiple times and read through Psalm 22 as well. Because the New Testament quotes or alludes to 17 times a connection with Jesus's crucifixion. And it's right out of Psalm 22. From the cross, instead of striking back at those who were mocking him, Jesus cries out with the first line from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of taking up your sword, take up the Psalms. And then take up your cross and put on self-giving love. Self-giving love. I'm telling you, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody. You don't necessarily need to go out of your way to add to your schedule to put on self-giving love. Just begin with the people you're already in doing life with, even difficult people. Ask yourself how you can love in practical ways. Those who are closest to you, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, all these folks. Take up your cro- taking up your cross involves making small Sometimes difficult decisions for the sake of love. These are decisions that help set a pattern, a cross-shaped pattern for your life. Jesus didn't appear out of nowhere in Gethsemane to make the most difficult and most significant decision in history. The decision to submit to the Father's will and quite literally to take up his cross, right? It happened on a journey. Took him three years to get there. How long is it going to take you and I to get there? Just one step at a time, one step at a time. Jesus made hundreds of small decisions, and that's what we're supposed to do. It's overwhelming sometimes, though. But if you will make the small, simple decisions one step at a time each day in our life to take up your cross, when you get to that big one, you're ready, and you'll make it. You'll make the right decision. And that's what happens with Jesus, that's what he's teaching. That's what he's modeling right here. 
After you establish a pattern by making small decisions, you take up your cross. Considering that, Then you can consider entering some places where people are in pain in your world and bring with you the love of Jesus. This is why we can't ever take uh, the love of Jesus to places where the pain exists. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Let me say this correctly. Hear me the right way. It becomes really easy to buy a turkey and all the stuff to feed people than it is to just bring those people into your house, right? It's easy. And we did a really good job of that as a church. We need to take it to that next place. We're going to continue. We're going to continue. I talked with the sisters at St. Rita's, right? And I, I committed us this year to, to, to purchase more turkeys next year. I did. I said, 120. How many do you think we could, uh, you know, you, you could feed? She said to me, well, we should be feeding at least 160, 180 people. I said, that's what we're going to do next year. Because we're absolutely capable of doing that. So, yeah. But what about just inviting, getting all those people into your house at Thanksgiving instead of just making it about you? And I was whining a little bit, complaining that maybe my kids weren't here and stuff like that. Please. You know, what about all these folks that just really need to be in your home? See, that's taking and entering places where people are in pain in your world and bring with you the love of Jesus. In going to the cross, Jesus went to a place that gathered the pain of the world. Pain, a world in pain needs love most of all. You can't, try, you can't do everything. And you can't feel guilty that you don't do everything. Jesus didn't do everything. Did you notice that? Well, Jesus gives us reasons for taking up our cross. Part of the reason is to save your life. The word life, remember I said underline life, also translates soul. And it dominates Jesus' explanation in Mark chapter 8 right here, right? For Jews, life was connected to their covenant, the promise between them and him and God, or partnership with God, who instructed them to choose life by remaining faithful to him. Otherwise, they would lose the promised land, right? The promised land. However, both John the Baptist and Jesus accused Israel of unfaithfulness. Even if many Jews, such as the Pharisees, deem themselves perfectly faithful, Jesus says, if you insist on preserving your version of life, you'll be turning your back on the partnership with God and you'll lose your life. So Jesus wants them to lose their lives, to release their versions of life and their versions of faithfulness to God and submit to, to, to the Lord. They should do for, so for the sake of both Jesus and the gospel. That's what we're all about. That's what partnering in the gospel means. We are partners now in the gospel. The gospel is the good news concerning the, the breaking through of the kingdom of God. And Jesus defeats Satan. He brings in the kingdom of God by taking up his own cross. And then his followers implement his victory by denying themselves and taking up their crosses as well in self-giving love and following him, submitting everything to him, everything. If you deny yourself and take up your cross, you'll save your life and you'll be choosing life and partnership with God. That's what it means to partner in the gospel.
So what are we supposed to be? Why should we take up our cross? Because we're going to lose our life for refusing to do so. And second, because of what we will save for doing so. You can insist on clinging to a crossless vision of life and defend against it and, and everything that comes at you. But even if you succeed beyond your wildest dreams, you will not be a partner with God. God treated us to bear his image, to reflect his splendor, to be the light of the world. And so refusing to embrace a cross-shaped life means you're turning your back on your own humanity. <clears throat> it also means that Jesus, the now enthroned Lord of the world, King of the world, will turn his back on you when he comes to establish his kingdom. He will want nothing to do with you because you have wanted nothing to do truly with him. This gets radical. This is where the tension is, right? Because being in partnership with God means that you participate in his purposes. That you participate in life. That you participate in the world. That you engage with the world. What are you achieving in partnership with God? You are achieving with all the followers of Jesus nothing less than, the, than vanquishing evil. <laughs> And the establishment of the eternal kingdom of God here on earth. How are you doing it? By taking up your cross in self-giving love or denying self. <clears throat> the most durable power in the world. Can I put up this last uh, quote, uh, Dennis? This is Martin Luther King Jr. again. Look at this. Love is the most durable power in the world. This creative force so beautiful, exemplified in the life of our Christ, is the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. Napoleon Bonaparte, the great military genius, looking back over his years of conquest, is reported to have said, Alexander Caesar, and I have built great empires, but upon what did they depend they depended on force. But centuries ago, Jesus started an empire that was built on love. And even to this day, millions will die for him. Who can doubt the veracity of these words? The great military leaders of the past have gone. And their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes. But the empire of Jesus, built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, still growing. Think about the way. You can participate in the empire of Jesus this week by doing one small thing for the sake of love that costs you something. Now look, for some people, $5,000 is a small thing. Some people, $500. Some people, $5. Or maybe it's just five minutes. One small thing. And I just want to talk about money. It's all kinds of things. All kinds of things. One small thing. What could you do this week? One small thing. That would actually be participating in the empire of Jesus this week. I love this passage of scripture, but man, does it get up in your face. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? 
I said I was preaching to me as much as you in this passage. Will you pray with me? Lord God, help us to get our arms around what it truly means to take up our cross. This is big. Denying ourselves. Denying ourselves. Giving up the right to define our own vision for life. Giving it to your son, Jesus. Takes a lot of humility, submission, and surrender, God. Help us to put up the white flag and surrender our lives to you daily and deny ourselves to die to self each and every day. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great weekend. Hope to see you next week. You gonna put up the Christmas decorations today?